Great. Sensational. Terrific. What is it? I told you. Cyberology. Are you with me? Not exactly with you, but somewhere nearby. Oh. This is Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and this is the second in a series of conversations about cybercrime that were recorded in Atlanta in late 2022. We'll also be joined later in the episode by Scott Wright to answer some of my stupid questions about cybersecurity, so make sure you stick around for that. But first, when I was in Atlanta, I got to meet with Dr. Vulcan Tapali, who is a professor of criminal justice at the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies at Georgia State University. We had an interesting chat about what it is about cybercrime that warrants special attention from researchers and whether it really requires a special approach. Also, Georgia State has an impressive group known as the Evidence-Based Cybersecurity Program. So I started out by asking Dr. Tapali about that group and the work that they do. I'm one of the two people who wrote the proposal to establish the Evidence-Based Cybersecurity Program here. And um, as part of the proposal, we had to identify somebody to lead it because neither me nor uh, the co-author of the program, Richard Wright, was really qualified to do this kind of work. We both have a lot of interest in cybersecurity and cybercrime and cybercriminology, but we're, we're in no way you know, qualified to run an enterprise as large and as ambitious as this one. So we brought David Maiman on board, and um, we're very fortunate that he decided to do so. And one of the features of the Evidence-Based Cybersecurity Group is that there's a lot of work for uh, undergraduate and graduate students to do. And they're all students in the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology here at the Andrew Young School. So it was just a natural fit that uh, students would start working with folks. I mean, David can't work with every single student, obviously. And um, one of the benefits of having the cybersecurity group here in the department is that those students have now sort of infected other faculty members in the department with their enthusiasm for this kind of work, including me. So, you know, I do a lot of work on offender decision-making. My research is mixed methods, but primarily it's ethnographic in nature. Very interested in sort of understanding motivations for committing offenses, the manner in which people commit offenses. Most of my work has been street work, so with active offenders. So the idea being that we we talk to active drug dealers, active carjackers, active uh, burglars about how they do what they do. And we've started transferring some of those uh, principles of understanding of under decision-making from the streets to the cyber context, essentially. And so there's a couple programs of research that I'm involved in now with some students both here, but also some folks in the United Kingdom here. I've been working with Fang Wang, who is a student from the EBCS. Uh, she has a lot of expertise in mixed methods herself. She's a really brilliant young scholar. And she came to me with this idea of better understanding romance scams, which are very, very common uh, and cost society millions. Uh, some anticipate probably it'll be billions in the near future. Uh, it's a you know an offense that was formerly kind of a, a face-to-face real-world offense that was perpetrated through mail fraud and then telephone and you know interpersonally. But now, you know, it's an, it's a really good example of how the exponential nature of technology has changed the basic dynamics of a, of an offense that was fairly simple before and turned it into something that is a what I would refer to as a fairly big threat. So individuals can perpetrate these crimes now. Uh, they don't have to do it one-on-one anymore. They don't have to do it in person anymore. They can sit behind a computer. They can concoct hundreds, if not thousands, of emails, send them out, troll for victims, so to speak, 
identify them, and then use all of these platforms that are now available for legitimate purposes to uh, perpetrate these offenses, which are really, they're, they're con jobs, essentially, uh, that uh, relieve people of often hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, and they, they're only expanding more and more. And we actually know very little about the individuals who perpetrate these offenses, their modus operandi, their uh, motivations, their their specific techniques. So the, the program that we did with Fung uh, was a really interesting one. She identified data online that is comprised of testimonials by uh, people who've been victimized by romance fraudsters. And it turns out that it's an extremely rich source of data and information, and we were able to apply kind of traditional quasi-ethnographic and qualitative analytic methodologies to extract patterns of behavior and uh, and such from the data, and really produce a very, very rich data set, sort of giving us an understanding of the offender decision-making process from the viewpoint of victims themselves. So it's really interesting work in the sense that it humanizes the victims and gives them a bit of a voice, which we often forget about, but it provides us some really good systematic insights into how it is that these uh, offenders perpetrate their crimes. And we um, analyzed about 54 of these testimonials. She did a deep dive on three or four of these websites that exist, including making sure that we'd done all the background research to make sure they were legitimate, that kind of thing. So it took about six months of data scraping and then qualitative coding and then recoding and and all those kinds of things. But the paper is going to appear in the American Journal of Criminal Justice very soon. It's already generating a lot of interest, and I think she's got a, a long road ahead of her in terms of the follow-on research. And none of it would have been possible without the support of the EBCF. And is that kind of research the focus for the center here? It's a focus for the center. I think the center itself, it was designed to be an interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary center. So there's involvement in EBCS from, obviously, from criminal justice and criminology, but also from economics and from the business school through management information sciences, computer sciences, and really anyone else on campus that are interested in this sort of cyber contextual environment and what it affords in terms of the perpetration of crime. So the initial kind of nucleus of the research agenda was based on the work that David's done with um, honeypots and and things like that, but it rapidly expanded through his efforts and it now covers a lot of different things. And I think one of the really great things about it is that it's got an open enough sort of social, cultural, and scientific architecture that it accommodates a variety of different research agendas. So I wouldn't say that the romance fraud thing is the focus, right? But it's a focus, methodologically, substantively, et cetera. So there's a lot of room actually with EBCS to be transformational and to change over time and adapt to new types of offenses that inevitably will crop up. You know, one of the things that we talk about here is the idea of sort of forecasting future crime, trying to understand what the next trends are going to be. And that, that's gotten to be much more difficult over time, primarily because of the accelerating nature of technology, right? So, so human beings think on linear terms, and technology adapts at, you know, these sort of, you know, incredibly fast exponential terms. And so we're, we're frequently behind the curve because we see things linearly when we should be thinking of them exponentially. So when I look at I look at an offense like romance fraud, this project that Fung and I worked on, right now uh, you can sort of see that exponential nature of change, right? I mean, before the offense was essentially an interpersonal face-to-face kind of a 
crime, you could victimize maybe one or two people at a time, maybe three if you were really, really prolific and on your toes. But now, you know, with a very simple, usable, easy technology that was designed for legitimate purposes, you're able to victimize dozens or even hundreds of people all at the same time, as long as you're able to manage the uh, software. That is something that was unanticipated. And I think if you'd asked law enforcement about it, they probably wouldn't have seen that coming. And it's not just the number of offenses, obviously, it's the amount of money that's being taken as well. And so, you know, this is a very good example of what EBCS is sort of interested in doing, sort of anticipating these kinds of trends before they do a lot of damage. And so it requires people to actually think much differently than they do uh, about human behavior. You mentioned that the romance scams, it's, it's essentially a con. People in the security community, they like to use this term social engineering. Yeah, yeah. From what you've seen, do you think there's any kind of substantive difference between running a con and doing social engineering? I think of running a con as essentially taking advantage of psychological disparities, essentially. So in the paper, actually, that we, we recently published, one of the things that we did was we discussed some of the theoretical underpinnings of this behavior, which I know when you mention theory, people's eyes glaze over. but But it's actually really important in this case, because what we talked about was the fact that, you know, a big part of running these scams and conning people essentially is that you have to engage in a process of impression management, right? So you have to manage how other people see you. That's something that human beings do every day. It's neither a positive nor negative thing. It's not necessarily nefarious. It's not necessarily a positive thing. It's just something that humans do. We're always trying to manage other people's impressions of us. We're trying to sort of essentially manipulate them, but it may be for, for good or bad reasons. That, that connects to uh, another theory, which is interpersonal deception theory. That, that's a theory that talks about people purposely trying to use those principles of impression management to get other people to do things that they would not otherwise do. And that's most often nefarious, but not necessarily all the time. What's, what's missing from both of those theories, though, if you think of them as sort of a package, is this idea of what does the existence of the cyber context contribute, right? And so that's where social engineering comes in, because what social engineering, which you're right, comes out of the computer science literature, acknowledges, and and something that criminologists have not, is that the cyber context is uniquely different from the physical context, that some of the expectations that we have about how people interact with each other, perceive each other, communicate with each other, many of those things Uh, go by the wayside when you're talking about something like the cyber context, Uh, the number of people you can communicate with, the myriad of ways that you can manipulate your image online, uh, people's impressions of you online, the number of platforms that are out there. And also, you know, a lot of these perceptual kinds of issues. There are things that we do with each other face-to-face that look very, very different when we're online. Uh, You know, we all know about this phenomenon of flaming, for example people saying things to one another online that they would never say to one another uh, in person. Now, I'm often reminded of the fact that, you know, when people are on the road and someone cuts them off, they're much more willing to, you know, throw a middle finger at somebody or scream at somebody or honk at somebody. You would never do that if you were actually face-to-face. And so there's something about being compartmentalized in a space where physical distance has sort of been uh, removed from the equation. And I think what social engineering gets is that that context is really, really critical, that we can't make the same assumptions about human behavior uh, and how people will behave and predict how people will behave based on these these ideas and these notions that we have of face-to-face behavior. And I think one of the great failings right now of the social sciences is that they continue to be sort of centrally focused on face-to-face communication and face-to-face interactions and take the cyber uh, contextual 
context um, for granted. That's one problem. And then the problem on top of that is that the cyber contextual context is growing exponentially and rapidly. And so their ability to even adapt some of these ideas that for you know physical world ideas, face-to-face world ideas, is is degrading over time, actually. So you really need these kinds of endeavors, you know, the, the evidence-based cybersecurity program, for example, you almost have to force people to think differently in order to anticipate these kinds of problems. Otherwise, we're going to constantly be behind the uh, eight ball when it comes to this sort of stuff. So the social engineering thing is important, uh, but it's not just another variation of an interpersonal deception theory or, you know, uh, the con game, so to speak. It's really taking into account the technology and the environment that it creates. So I guess that begs the question, how should we change and and what kinds of research should we be doing in the future? Yeah, this is another kind of aspect of the center, I think, that's really interesting is that it hasn't really created any boundaries or uh, brokered any kinds of you know barriers to the kind of research that can be engaged in. Some of the research is fairly simple, you know, people interacting with each other online. It could be scraping data. Um, but it could also be the implementation of, you know, advanced technologies like virtual reality and and such to uh, collect data in a in a kind of a different way. I think, you know, part of the challenge is that criminology is a field of study, not a discipline. And it's an advantage because you can beg, borrow, and steal from any discipline you want as long as what you're trying to do is explain criminality in some way or the work of doing crime prevention. It's currently kind of, I think, mired in a very old-fashioned sort of orientation, which is that, you know, American criminology is very, very heavily steeped in sociology, which is a fine discipline, but it's not the only way to explain why crime takes place. And one of the things that frequently happens is that, you know, people in the United States, which is, you know, kind of dominates uh, criminology, uh, sort of think that the only the American context counts and sociology is the only way to sort of understand crime. But we know that people in other countries see crime very differently. They, they borrow concepts from psychology, anthropology, and law especially. One of the things I've always noticed about criminology is that criminology students don't necessarily know a lot about the law. And you would think that they would, given that breaking the law is, is, is kind of the central focus. And I think we're running into the same problem when you look at cybercrime. What I see in the current uh, research in cybercrime is a failure on the part of those studying the topic to really understand that context. And what I mean by that is most people who study cybercrime, and I won't name names or anything like that, but most people who study it, what they're really doing is they're sort of adapting what they know from the face-to-face world and the traditional sociological theories and just sort of slapping it on a cyber context and saying, see, this explains it as well. And what you find when you look at the research is that the explanatory power is not particularly strong. And part of the reason for that, I think, is that a lot of the people who are doing the research think that it's a one-to-one transfer. You know, oh, this is a face-to-face context. This is a cyber context. This is what it means to meet somebody in a bar when you want to go on a date. This is what it means to meet somebody on um, an app when you want to go on a date. And they're not the same thing. They're clearly, they're different things. And part of it, like I said, it comes from a lack of understanding of the context. We don't have enough criminologists to really understand software. We don't have enough criminologists to understand what the app architecture is online, for example. Most social scientists are fairly oblivious to this sort of the, the nature of exponential change in technology. So I think of as a result, when you start thinking about these things, when you start thinking about the cyber context and, and the things that happen on the dark web and through all these apps and everything, it can be a little scary for somebody who's been doing traditional social science, right? Because you've got this sort of basis for, for how humans behave 
And the, the scariest thing is not changing the theories, but really changing what you think of as the, the basis for all that behavior, right? The, the fact that you're going into a completely different kind of world, right? It's almost like, you know, well, would, how do you do farming on planet Earth versus how would you do farming on Mars, right? They're, the conditions have all changed. So you can't just say, well, we'll just use the same principles, right? You'd have to change so many things, things that we take for granted, things that we don't, we don't really think about. And I think that a lot of social scientists who are just now starting to get into thinking about things happening online sort of fail to take that into account. Uh, and that has real repercussions. We have a legal system that, that changes very, very slowly. It's very, very ponderous. Uh, it has not adapted well at all to the new uh, versions and forms of crime out there. There are all kinds of jurisdictional issues. You know, uh, who do we arrest? Do we arrest the guy who's in Estonia? Do we arrest... Um, somebody who's in Finland, because that's where the VPN is. Do we arrest, did the crime take place in Atlanta where I live, or did it take place in Charlotte where my bank is located? You know, these are the kinds of questions that they never, almost never came up in traditional law. And when there were changes in technology that forced changes in law, they happened previously so slowly that you could actually have some adaptation. We went from, you know, horse theft to car theft. And and clearly, you know, there was a change there, but people said, well, it's just stealing a, a different type of locomotion. Well, that's not what we have now. We have crimes that, you know, are sort of unimaginable to people who lived even 25 or 30 years ago, never mind 100 years ago. So I think, I think that we have to train the, the new current group of social scientists to really respect and understand that new context, even if they're not doing cybercrime research. And I think that's just necessary. If you're a sociologist who's studying relationships or a psychologist who's studying relationships, I don't think it's possible to study them properly without understanding, you know, how the technological context has changed the way that we interact with each other. I think we're having a lot of trouble right now, for example, in the post-COVID era. You know, there's a generational shift. You know, young people are interacting with each other so differently from the way that they did pre-COVID. And some of that is because of COVID, but some of that is because COVID sort of necessitated the implementation of technologies for, for communication in a way that is sort of baffling to people from older generations. And so if you're a sociologist or a psychologist or an anthropologist and you're studying these processes, but you're ignoring that context, you're not going to really understand why young people are behaving the way that they are today. You're using old ideas to try to understand that. So I, I think that's, that's really, really critical. The, the other thing to think about, especially when you're talking about crime, you know, we've been studying crime the same way for many, many decades. And you know, we have a certain kind of data, administrative data that comes from like the Uniform Crime Reports and NIBRS and, and whatnot. But that data that's collected is collected primarily by law enforcement. There's not a lot of good stuff in there at all about cybercrime. Uh, I think there's maybe one question in the UCR, and you know they just recently revamped uh, NIBRS and and essentially admitted that you know we just don't know how to integrate the cyber context into this. Now there's some stuff in the NCVS, the National Crime Victimization Survey, but even there it's just a simple question. You know, have you been um, the victim of a cyber fraud? You know, well that's that's a pretty small question compared to to what we're, we're experiencing. So the face-to-face -face crime is essentially staying the same. I mean, it goes up and down by degrees of percentages. But when you think about cybercrime, it's been expanding the entire time. But because we don't have really good data on it, the problem is that we fail to understand its, its total impact. And so what I think criminologists essentially are doing right now is actually studying a smaller and smaller and smaller slice of the crime pie, because the pie has been growing, but we're unaware of 
the rest of the pie, essentially. And so, and the problem there is that criminologists, like many social scientists, are are dependent on quantitative data and administrative data, and it simply doesn't exist. Um, it's not collected in the same way. Police departments don't don't arrest people for cybercrime. Uh, if your if your credit card gets ripped off, uh, usually the credit card no company knows about it before you do. They usually make you whole. If someone's really hitting them really hard, they they will actually conduct the investigation and then just hand it to a police department and say you need to go arrest this person. So you don't get the same kind of uh, data as a result, and it's going to be hard to extract that data in the future because most of it's held by private companies. And there are all kinds of reasons why they may or may not want to share it. Um, and there are all kinds of reasons why they may not want to systematize it the way that we do with traditional crime uh, statistics. So that's a big challenge that we need to be thinking about. I think when I go to talks and people are talking about cyber crimes, like, for example, advanced, advanced fee fraud scam, we have estimates of how much money people have lost. We have estimates of you know how many people have been arrested, but we don't really have good systematic data. I think that's a huge challenge. Um, and so we've got to find a way for private entities and governments to sort of share a process of some sort. And I think that's that's actually an area where universities, think tanks, and research centers like EPCS can have their greatest impact because they can serve as a kind of a credible, trustable go-between in collecting and, and uh, putting that data together for, for research. I, I tend to think that criminology did itself a disservice by getting the wrong metaphor when trying to work out how to adapt. They seem to focus on old wine and new bottles, whereas I think it's probably more akin to old perfume and new bottles. Sure, <laughs> sure the bottle's different, but man, that makes an impact on the experience of yeah, that thing. it does. It absolutely does. I mean, I think the problem is, I, I, I mean, I, I keep going back to this point of not understanding the exponential nature of technology. And part, part of it is that, I mean, we're just hardwired hard not to think in those terms. I mean, our brains have evolved for a linear world, not an exponential world. And this sort of exponential change thing, it's only been taking place for the last, you know, eight or nine decades. And so when you tell people things like, you know, the amount of processing power on your phone is 5,000 times greater than the computer that sent the, you know, the first people to the moon, they sort of understand it in an abstract way, but they, they think it's still a comparison between the new and the old. What they really don't understand is that the amount of processing power we had yesterday is significantly different than what we have today. And, and that that significant difference isn't by an order of one, it's by an order of 2.5, 3, 4, 5, whatever it is. That part is really difficult for them to understand. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of seamless. People don't appreciate, for example, the the technology that they have in their hand, a cell phone, for example. I mean, this, I was going through my drawer the other day. I've got a bunch of old dead tech in there that I just, I don't know why. I feel like it's going to be worth something in a museum someday, so I hang on to it. And I have, a, I have an original iPhone. Uh, I was one of the first people to have one. My wife bought it for me uh, as a birthday present. And I was looking at it, and I just thought to myself, God, this thing was so simple back then. And as a matter of fact, I actually... Uh, I looked at, I watched a video of Steve Jobs sh sort of showing off the features, and I thought to myself, "Boy, that is that is just ancient. That has nothing to do with what I've got in my hand right now. The capabilities now are just you know, light years ahead of that." So when I think of you know social science, I think that people work in ways that they're comfortable with, and they replicate the same processes because those those replications are ways to be successful, right? I mean, you do what your what your mentor did, and you tweak it a little bit, this whole idea of standing on, on the shoulders of giants. But I do think it does miss 
you know, I, I think you're right. I think the idea of perfume rather than than wine really works in this case because it's about the impact, right, of change. And that's what I think people are failing to understand. For some reason, it's kind of kind of flying over folks' heads. There are very, very few people that are thinking about these things in a in a really impactful, abstract way. And the, and the idea that we would implement this in policy and law, it, it's a huge, massive challenge. I mean, it's hard enough to do it within one country, uh, but the idea that you now have to coordinate that across jurisdictions, across countries, across different forms of political systems, I think it's a massive, massive challenge for sure. Science and scientific consensus sort of has a, an inertia to it. Mm-hmm. it. It takes a while to change direction. How much do you think the difficulty of finding new and alternative sources of data like private companies, like platform operators, and methods for validating and, and understanding how we can reliably use that data, how much of that's coming from having to deal with a private company as opposed to a public institution? And how much of that is coming from the scientific community itself not wanting to adapt and adopt new methods for for validating data. Yeah, I think I think the primary responsibility lies with the scientific community. We need to push harder. I mean, clearly. And my experience is, is especially when you watch TV and and see the big items come up, you know, Sony got hacked or Yahoo got hacked and I think 3 billion accounts were were exposed. It's only when you have these huge massive breaches or problems that come up FTX just collapsed for example that people sort of wake up and pay attention so there's it's all it's as the public health people say there's no primary prevention going on here it's all secondary prevention right we're always waiting for a disaster to happen and then we adapt but you know there are models for doing in time real world research that has an impact on policy quickly and which is still scientifically valid, but it does require a kind of a cultural shift in how we think about doing science. I mean, the traditional model for doing science is you collect your data, you analyze your data, you replicate your data, you write up your paper, you put it out there. You know, that's great for the kind of phenomena that are fairly stable phenomena. I think that's still a wonderful model. But the fact of the matter is that we have things that are changing so rapidly that if you were to apply that kind of a timeline, and by the way, you're also including the whole revise and resubmit process yeah. and all that. When you include all that in the timeline, I mean, you're you're way too late. And so one of the things I would really like to see us do, not just in cyber, but in, in all kinds of other places, is sort of this real-time, just-in-time kind of research. National Science Foundation has a mechanism for doing this. You know, they will, if there's a phenomenon that takes place and it's going to go away really quickly, they've got money that they can throw your way that's not a bad mechanism, although even that, I, I suspect, is not fast enough to catch some of the things that we're experiencing right now. But, you know, new way, thinking about new ways of, of analyzing the data is important. And thinking about new ways of getting the information out as fast as possible. So this idea of let's get things out there as working papers. Let's put them out in the ether. Let's make sure that we get people commenting on them, understanding that they are, yes, still working papers, that, yes, you still have to apply certain kinds of methodologies to confirm things. But I think breaking open that tradition, doing more open source kinds of research, you know, this idea of creating fiefdoms of data, I think it's really damaging. You know, oh, I collected this data, it's just mine, it's all for me. We really have to have some cultural change around that because most of the stuff that we're talking about right now is moving forward very fast. And, you know, the unintended consequences of implementing even the most innocent looking data 
it's very, very hard to to anticipate what those problems will be. I think cryptocurrency is a good example of that. But there are other forms of technology. It doesn't take much, especially when the usability is so high. You know, it doesn't take much for someone who's clever to say, well, you know what, I could take crypto and I could match it up with, let's see, an AI or some machine learning. And then I could, you know, piggy that back that onto another blockchain process. And then I could just put it out there on the dark net. And let me add, you know, let me tweak it with a virus. Or, you know, you can really create something very fairly rapidly because there are platforms out there that are designed to, to uh, implement this. All it takes is creativity. It doesn't even take a deep understanding of software or programming or anything like that. Those unintended consequences, we can't wait two years for a paper to come out to warn us about those kinds of things. And then the knock-on sort of, you know, creating policy around that paper. So so let me get this straight. The, you're going to collect the data in 2022. You're going to write the paper. It's going to be published in 2023 if you're lucky. You'll have some policy discussions. Maybe you'll get something implemented in 2024. Like two years is is a lifetime. You can't You can't do that. So we do need to adapt how we do the research and how we communicate the research. I think just-in-time funding is important. I think working paper series are really important. I think doing sort of unconferences where you bring people together and you say, we're going to brainstorm right now today and we're going to figure it out right now today and sort of move forward. So that does require bringing people together, getting them to communicate with each other. Those are some of the things that we need to do. The problem is that scientists are working at the same speed as governments and companies and corporations and, and law. And none of those groups feels an urgency until something really, really bad happens. And COVID is a great example of this. I don't think anybody anticipated that we would have vaccines with 90 to 95%, you know, but it was, it was such a huge threat that, you know, it just sort of forced uh, us to innovate. We don't want to be in a situation where we're forced to innovate. That's very problematic. We want to innovate before, not after the problem has taken place. And I think as, as impressive as it is, that we were able to come up with something that within a year that was capable of doing what, what the COVID vaccine has done, it is still the case that millions of people probably yeah. died unnecessarily. Yeah. And, and it's because we didn't have a preemptive attitude toward these things. Uh, and it is hard, you know, when you say to somebody, hey, look, this thing could be a huge threat. And they look at it and they don't even understand what it is, especially with the news technologies. I mean, most people who invest in crypto have no idea what crypto is. They don't know the difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin, for example, or Litecoin or whatever it is. They don't understand the different capabilities. They don't understand how the blockchain works. Yeah. Uh, and so it's really difficult to understand something as a threat uh, until, unfortunately, it has a devastating effect. Thanks very much for sitting down with me. I sure. really appreciate it. Yeah. And um, yeah, I look forward to the new stuff coming Absolutely. up. Absolutely. Yeah, that was great. If you're involved in cyber, you are often expected to answer questions on everything from whether there's any point to 100 gigabit Ethernet in residential settings to the difference between fair use and fair dealing laws. The best way to get ahead of those wild questions is to ask an expert, and we happen to have cornered an expert in cybersecurity training. Scott Wright has been a security professional for 20 years, specializing in security awareness and compliance, and is the founder of ClickArmor. But more importantly, he's a good sense of humor and he's willing to answer my daft questions. So let's take advantage of that and ask him this. How does security awareness fit within the puzzle for, for security for businesses? Actually, the, the best way to look at that is from a risk management point of view. And I've actually taught risk management courses before, so this is kind of rolls off my tongue pretty easily. Generally, in information security, when we talk about risks, there are three elements that we really need to focus on. One is asset value, which is really just what you stand to lose, for example, if, if something is compromised. 
Then there are the threats, which are, you know, the actors or the malware that are trying to access those assets. And in every case, if you can identify a threat or an asset, there is some path between them. And, and that path is really the vulnerability. And so you can measure or put some value on the level of vulnerability between the assets and the threats. So for example, you might have in the physical world, a robber, you know, in your neighborhood coming to your door and they're, they're checking the strength of your door lock, or even if it is locked, right? So whether your door is locked or not is a vulnerability that your house and everything in it, which are your assets, have uh, exposed to the threats. And so when you think of it that way, vulnerabilities are really key because that's what we actually invest in, in order to reduce risk. So we actually will look at, you know, any kind of controls, whether it's firewalls or password managers or antivirus as controls that limit the ability of some threat to get to our data or our systems. And on the people side, it's almost exactly the same. We can look at what are the vulnerabilities of people against social engineers or against phishing attacks, for example. Um, or you can even talk about accidental threats or, or accidental hazards, sometimes they're called natural hazards. And so, you know, the risk of having something exposed by accident, maybe you left your briefcase full of documents in, on the bus. <laughs> so that's an accidental risk. The vulnerability really is the likelihood of the person to forget, you know, to, to actually take it with them when they leave. So they're Ability to actually block the threat from being successful is, is the key thing. And so when we look at those things all together, we can map out people as one aspect, processes, which are like policies and procedures, and then the technology. So we all know that technology is useful for lowering risks, and we like it because it is reliable and it is consistent. You know, we know how it's going to act like a firewall, for example, is a good example, because you can say, set these rules so that only certain types of traffic coming in will be routed to the inside. And we sometimes hear the term human firewall. Well, on the people side, I don't really like that term because if you teach somebody how to, you know, protect uh, an asset one day, then the next day they might forget <laughs> or they might be in a bad mood or they might be under a lot of pressure. And so they don't always behave the same way. So there, there's not really a close approximation of, of people being something like a human firewall. But we do have to look at risks from the point of view of what are our investments in technology and our uh, you know, setting up of processes and policies and our investment in the people, which could be the training or the screening that we do to make sure they're reliable. And when we look at what's actually invested in the real world, very little relatively is spent on the people. And so compared to the technology, we have a long way to go for actually getting security awareness to be useful as a risk management tool, which it very much can be because we're all very powerful computers. <laughs> you know, they're capable of avoiding threats or acting on, you know, to report something. If you see something gone bad, you're kind of the first and last line of defense. But if we haven't really invested in making those people take the most efficient or most valuable actions that we can have them do, um, then they really aren't contributing to the security puzzle for business. So it's, it's really just a balance of the people, process, and technology that we have to get to. Thanks, Scott. And thanks as well to Dr. Topoli for the enjoyable conversation. 
There will of course be links in the show notes for the papers mentioned if you have any interest in reading further. But in the meantime, this has been Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research and its researchers. It's produced by me, but it's only really made possible by the kind guests who share their time and their research. You can find out more about the show at cybercrimeology.com and you can talk to me at cybercrimeology on Twitter or give me an email at cybercrimeology at gmail.com.